Hey. Oh, hello. Hey. Are you coming to get me? Where are you? Are you coming to get me? 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 Come get me. 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 Come 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 come. Can you not just send me your location on Google Maps? Are you coming to get me? Where are you? I put out the best bird seed. Seriously. It tastes like mango. Mango. Come and get up. Seriously, why do I have to do that? You know what? I've got a headache. In this episode of the Culture Quest podcast, we finally define the segment that we do at the beginning of each episode and we quickly discuss the movie Jojo Rabbit. We then head into the main discussion, which is about the extremely funny but kind of sad book Last Chance to See by Douglas Adams. And we close by introducing the subject of our next episode, All-Star Superman. Hello and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers and we're bringing you this episode using the latest Twig technology. With me, as always, are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. Hello. And I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. And that includes everyone who joined us since the 8th of February 2020, despite anything Peter might say. Mm-hmm. I thought we were running an accruals basis for how we thank guests. <laughs> I want to thank everyone, and you won't stop me. <laughs> I also want to thank Chantel from uh, Lady Justice Podcast and JT from True Crime Lab for doing the intro bit of this episode. Uh, Lady Justice is a true crime podcast. Its latest episode as of now vanished. <laughs> it's extremely creepy if you're into that kind of stuff. And uh, True Crime Lab is a true crime podcast with a bit of a comedic twist. Um, both are worth checking out, and I'll put the links uh, to both of them in the episode show notes. Also, stick around after the ending theme of this episode. We've got a bonus promo clip for the Round and Round podcast. Give it a listen, you might find something you'll like. Um, all right, let's start this episode by talking about the opening segments that we do in each episode. Uh, as you probably noticed, Peter and Barrio, we start every episode by discussing um, a few different topics. Like, um, we in, in, I think, episode six, we made up kind of our own laws and uh, in episode seven i think we talked about what the world would be like in 50 years and um you know it's it's kind of become this sort of its own segment of the show like we never actually planned to have this segment we never really talked about it or what's it for like at first i thought that this part of the episode would be used to talking about you know comments from listeners or fixing mistakes that we've made in previous episodes and stuff but that's not what happened. <laughs> so I myself kind of feel that this became an important part of our show, you know. And, you know, also we're, we're trying to become more cultured on this podcast. And, you know, cultured people often pretend to have smart conversations about stuff they don't really understand. So I kind of think it fits the, the theme pretty well. Undooped. Undooped. Or how do you say <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and I think it's easy to see that we've never really planned it because... It kind of feels undefined as a part of the show. So I kind of wanted to talk about it, kind of make it an, an official part of the show, like after 10 episodes, kind of define this part of the show that sometimes takes like half an hour um, to record and, and, and to listen to. So I thought about a few names for this part of the, the podcast, for the, the segment that we start the episode with. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have any suggestions yourself, Barry or Peter, um, I'd love to hear them. But like, what do you guys think about tavern talk hmm. because like it's before we go on an adventure we still sit at the tavern does it mean we can start drinking during the segment yep uh, bring your own mead <laughs> yeah on an unrelated note i think it's a good idea 
to start drinking during the show. <laughs> that, that can take it to a diff- completely different direction. We'll start swearing <laughs> and, and talking about stuff that we shouldn't. I love you guys. I don't know if I told you that, but I love you guys. So much. <laughs> you told us already. <laughs> like two minutes ago. <laughs> Another idea I had is um, Culture Corner, which I kind of like the name. It's fun to say, but it kind of excludes the main discussion from being culture, which, you know, it's the main part of the show. So I don't think it really fits. And my last suggestion is, is pre-quest warm-ups. I like the first two because I can pronounce them. Um, I think Tavern Talk is the most uh, is is the I best like one. Talk. Yeah. Do I have a theme already? Oh yeah. <laughs> like I, I was joking, but that that's awesome. Okay. I I have three suggestions for kind of a um, an audio drop that we can use. I try to keep it kind of short and simple. Um, you know, kind of give it the 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 feeling of like a fake classy conversation. You know. So here's the first one. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> short, sweet. <laughs> it's called The Story Unfolds, which I, I feel works great. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. Although it's not, it's not really the vibe of Tavern Talk. No, not exactly. I don't think I have something that perfectly fits because I, I couldn't find anything that perfectly fits the, the, the Tavern Talk feel. I tried to, to wrangle something out of our theme song, but there's no, nothing that I can you know, um, cut out of it that's like three seconds. You know, I, I didn't want to go with something very long. Anyway, here's my second suggestion. <laughs> what is that from? That's from something. Um, that... I don't know. It's called Cartoon Bank Heist. Um, it's from Gaming Sound Effects from YouTube. It's the name of a channel. And it's like, um, you know, it's a free sound effect that you can use. I don't know. You might have heard it in a lot of places. I think I think I know where I've heard it from. And yeah, it, it doesn't really fit in our theme, but it's, I, I like it. <laughs> Maybe we can record like like a, a drowsy bar sounds and then just go yeah mm, tavern talk uh okay i know where it's from from casually explained that's have you guys ever seen that oh what's that oh it's a channel okay yeah youtube channel it, it's very mm. sarcastic and satirical and and they also use it yeah it's, it seems so hmm. here's one that i really liked but we can't use it because it's really long and also it's the happy birthday song which <laughs> doesn't fit at all but like Listen to the the intro and listen to the pub sounds in the background. That's what that's kind of what I was going for. Like the the background sounds, the talking is perfectly us. Yeah, you know? that would be good. Yeah, but it's a happy birthday song. <laughs> I'm not gonna use that. <laughs> it, 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 all, it also sounds kind of cartoony. Yep. And well, here's my third suggestion for uh, an audio drop. That, what do you guys think? That that's cute, but again, it's it's not it's not like the tavern. No, not at all. It's not not taverny at all. And like I thought, we could use one of these. I like the first one best. And I don't know until we get something else that does fit the theme. Because yeah, maybe we can record something. Maybe one of the listeners can record something and set it in. I don't know. Why? Maybe maybe for now we can take the happy birthday one, but just you know clip. Just a little segment out of it. Yeah. Preferably, should we shouldn't hear it's a happy birthday one. <laughs> no, take just the first three seconds. That's it. Yeah. Tavern talk. Yeah. Cool. Okay, I'll cut something out of it. So, um, in today's tavern talk segment, which we do every episode, 
Um, we've decided to talk about Jojo Rabbit, the, the movie, the latest movie from Taika Waititi. Um, because, you know, our Hunt for the Wilder People episode, we had so much fun discussing Taika's work that we kind of decided to watch and talk about Jojo Rabbit. Um, so here we are now. Um, let me give you a quick summary of the movie. Jojo Rabbit is kind of a coming-of-age story uh, that is set in Germany during World War II. Um, the story follows um, Johannes, or Jojo, which is a, a 10-year-old Nazi enthusiast <laughs> who dreams of becoming a part of Hitler's guard, but he goes into this summer camp to, to practice to be like a soldier, a little Nazi soldier, um, and he is injured and is forced to stay at home while he recovers. So he gets stuck at home uh, while outside the war is kind of raging on, and some of his friends are taking part in the war. Um, his father has been sent away, presumably for the war. His older sister died before the movie even began, and um, Jojo lives with his mother, uh, Rosie. Uh, he kind of finds out that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl, Elsa, in the walls of uh, the second floor of the house. And he realizes that he is in a sticky situation. He can't tell the authorities that his mom is harboring a Jewish girl because it will take his mom away for helping a Jew. He tries to, you know, kind of get the secrets of the Jews from Elsa for a book he's writing. And slowly he becomes friendly with her. And his imaginary friend is Hitler. So that's kind of it. <laughs> what do you guys think of the movie? I I loved it. Like here in Israel, we we have we we have a lot of awareness regarding World War Two and the Holocaust and, and Nazis and etc. And uh, and throughout our lives, I guess we you know we we kind of we kind of rub closely to it, and we see a lot of a lot of movies, and and they all kind of and 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 they differ, right? And this one is just like a completely new one and a completely fresh one. I think that was the 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 thing I liked the most because like it's it's a very hard topic to tackle. It it has a lot of weight and um you don't want to completely make fun of it, I guess, but you do want to like make it relatable relatable. So the the whole approach of taking, you know, Hitler and and making him an imaginary friend which we, who actually doesn't look exactly like Hitler and of course looks more like uh, Tycho I I thought it was it was great I think um Scarlett Johansson did did a fabulous work I really enjoyed uh, her acting and um Jojo was also really good yeah really good child actor yeah really good child yeah. actor yeah I totally agree I kind of think that it's something that we've Briefly mentioned in the Hunt for the Wilder People episode, Taika kind of takes serious and dark, maybe, themes, but diffuses the tension with comedy. It's something he does often, you know? And, like, he he puts everything out there. He, he's not hiding anything, but he manages to mix it with lighthearted moments. And he never ridicules or disrespects the subject, you know? It's like, this movie is talking about kind of how the, the adults or, you know, the country and the teachers and the parents in Germany brainwashed the minds of the children in that period. He, and he's not shying away from it, but still he makes the movie extremely funny. You know, it, it's one of the movies I left the most at in recent times, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. It was, um, it was such a weird mix of comedy, drama, even a bit of action you know, like towards the end, it got yeah. kind of like an action movie, but it was, it was, is a weird mix. And I got to say, like, it's hard to compare it to other films because there's no film that's sort of even 
operates in the same space that Jojo Rabbit does. So, like, there's some pure comedies and there's, like, pure drama and stuff. But to sort of, like, meld them together, in, not in sort of, like, the Ryan Reynolds sort of way, in, like, a completely different way, it's quite unique. So, it was kind of incredible how they tackled the subject so tactfully with all the elements in it, with Taika Waititi playing Hitler and obviously there being sort of a blind nationalism and um, and hiding, you know, a Jew in, in the attic and stuff, it could have gone sour pretty quickly. And even the first half hour, I was kind of thinking it could have gone, but he pulls it off and it's so enjoyable. So another win for Taika. Yeah, definitely. He really manages to mix drama and comedy without compromising on either of the genres, right? Yeah, it's usually, like, when I say Ryan Reynolds type, I mean, like, you know how you get sort of those, like, um, movies which, like, are a drama, but then, the co- like, when the directors just can't resist, they just put in a joke and it sort of leaves it like a drama without consequences. Well, Taika has kind of found a backdoor way around doing that. So he keeps the tension high, even with comedy. So, and I don't, and I haven't really, I don't really understand how, like what he's doing differently, which makes it so entertaining. I just, I, I can't put my finger on it, but it, it's a different sort of flavor of what we've been getting for, you know, what, 15 years. And I can, I, I don't think we can talk about this movie without mentioning um, the character of Yorkie, the, the little um, friend uh, Jojo has. He's like this little little dumb child, little fat kid <laughs> yeah. that, that was turned into a soldier. He was just crazy, crazy funny. I, I loved the little guy. And he also kind of shows how effective the brainwashing is because, like, he, he you know, he goes out and be- becomes a soldier and he's like the connection that Jojo has to the real world because he kind of you know, pops up every once in a while and g- gives him news of the, the how the war is going and everything. And like, he kind of notices, you know, some holes in the Nazi education. Like he, he talks about how the Japanese, which are their closest allies, do not fit the Aryan race description at all. But like, he mindlessly fights for the Germans anyway. And um, he's a tool to, to kind of pass on another layer of the story, which is, extremely well done but he's just so hilarious just a great little actor guy yeah <laughs> I, I gotta say that well i can i i can understand why, why you say he he follows mindlessly uh after after the that propaganda but i don't know i i, I thought it was like in uh I, I got the feeling it was like this cute naive kind of way like like this is mm-hmm. this is probably what you would expect from every child regardless of of the of the society he lives in. Um, I found it very amusing. It was like this comedy tool to, to show you the um, the dissonance between someone who is so naive to something that is like dead serious. I, I think this is this is probably what, what's happening throughout the movie. You know, like another character that we didn't mention, but was uh, I really enjoyed it, was that colonel, colonel right? That... Um, yeah, what was um, his name? I don't remember, but like I'll Google it. And and I also understand that he and his buddy were like a gay couple because at the end, I, I think I read about it afterwards that um, they were that they, they were the uniform they designed, and part of it was like this pink 
um, flower or, or ribbon or something like that, which is how the Nazi party used to to uh, uh, to mark uh, homosexuals. Um, hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, you mean you're talking about Captain Klentendorf? Yeah, which or or um, the Sam Rockwell. Uh, character because I don't know how to pronounce Captain Klansendorf. <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> there is that scene like more than halfway through where there um, Jojo sort of catches him and the other guy, the um, Finkel. Finkel, yeah. Um, kind of catches them doing something weird and I was like, what the hell? Yeah. I remember when uh, when we left the movie I was a bit confused because um, the, the kid actors in this movie in the beginning, at least, they kind of have these German accents, which makes sense because they're German kids. They lose them pretty quickly, don't they? The, the Yorkie character, especially, he has this heavy British accent. And I <laughs> I don't know, I kept thinking, is it something that, that was supposed to happen in the movie? Is it part of the commentary of the movie? Or is it just, you know, kid actors who... Yeah, I don't know, actually. I, t- I actually forgot, until you just said it, I forgot they had... German accents at the start, but yeah. maybe w- they weren't just putting them on for... No, but th- that wouldn't make sense. No, I, I don't know. I was thinking they might have been putting them on for the sort of trying to be extra German like when they're going to, yeah. the, um, to the thing, but that wouldn't that wouldn't really make sense. Like, there should be German anyway, so... Yeah, yeah but know. other than that, other than the, the accents, I think... I think everyone was just great in this movie, like uh, Jojo and Elsa and Rosie and uh, Taika also. I I think they were just great actors. I think for a 12-year-old, that kid is just incredible as as an actor. Yeah, Roman Griffin Davis. It's crazy that that a kid that young could could hold an entire movie by himself. That's intense. Incredible. Yeah. No, he's really talented. The first half hour went pretty slow, actually. Or maybe even less than half hour, maybe like 25 minutes. But I think it went like kind of slow. And I was like, I was even a little concerned. I was like, oh, hopefully it sort of picks up pace. But then it got far better than what I kind of imagined going into it. Like I didn't know how a movie with this premise could really be different than what we've seen before. But it was surprising. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like other type of YDT movies I've watched. I come in with expectations and he blows me away did you guys prefer hunt for the wilder people or do you prefer jojo rabbit hmm no i it's a good question uh i think i I, like if i had to choose you know one to watch every once in a while and i had to stick to that one like for the rest of my life i'll take jojo rabbit i think it had like a lot more meaning to it i think it was deeper and all in all i thought it was a better movie like i found myself laughing very often and like laughing out loud in Jojo Rabbit. I really liked it. And um, Hunt, it's like a great movie, period. You know, it doesn't have too much meaning behind it. It doesn't have as many endearing moments in it as in Jojo Rabbit, I thought. Yeah, I also I also think that um, you can really feel that uh, in Jojo, Taika, you can see how much he grew. It was like... Yeah, it, it feels like a whole new level. Yeah, it was, it was a, a different level. I agree. What do you think, Peter? Uh, I think I would go with Hunt, but if you're asking what one I would rather watch like multiple times like over the next few years, I'd probably still go with Jojo because it feels more like you could get more out of it with multiple viewings, you know, like you could catch more of the satire and stuff like that, which might have gone over your head. But I think just as a movie, like watch it once and what I think is like the better um, sort of 
complete package. I I think it might be Hunt for the Wilder People for me. I think it was mm. just, I think the pacing was just incredible for a movie, and I think um, well the 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 cinematics was a, about similar for me, but I think the character development was a little bit easier to track in Hunt for the Wilder People like progressively through the movie like there was a few different stages of character development whereas like the Jojo Rabbit was sort of like a long sort of one long arc when he's sort of um becoming more um or less oblivious about his sort of um the Nazi party so I th- I think yeah I I think it would be Hunt for the Wilder People for me cool okay that's uh, an interesting choice but um you're allowed to make it <laughs> um, <laughs> we won't judge you yeah. although you're fired <laughs> this episode we're going to be talking about Last Chance to See a book by Douglas Adams and Mark Carwardine um, the book came out in February um, 1990 which means it came out just over 30 years ago so um, Last Chance to See Uh, Douglas Adams, he's a science fiction author. He's the guy who wrote um, Hitchhiker's Guide series. And Mark Carwardine, he's a zoologist. Um, the book follows um, the author's travels as they try to go and see a few endangered species around the world. This book started out as kind of a um, documentary radio series in 1989 for the BBC. Uh, and the book is, it, it kind of accompanies the show, the radio show. And the whole thing even started in 1985. Uh, the WWF and The Observer had a project in which they sent authors to see and write about endangered species, kind of to raise awareness. And they sent Adams, accompanied by uh, Carwardine, to Madagascar to see the I.I. Limmer, And that trip is described in the beginning of the book of uh, Last Chance to See. And on that trip, Adams and Carwardine met, and they both thought that the trip and the project were very successful, so they've decided to develop a radio show based on the idea. Later, Mark said that when they started planning uh, what places they wanted to go to, they hung up a map of the world, and Douglas put pins in places he wanted to visit, while Mark put pins in places that had endangered species. And then they, you know, tried to go to all of the places that had both of the pins. And as far as I've managed to find out, they spent the first trip in Madagascar, plus a year traveling in which they went to all of the places described in the book. So all in all, just over a year and collecting material. In 2001, Mark and Douglas were talking about doing another trip together, uh, maybe write another book. But Douglas died of a heart attack before that actually uh, came to fruition. Mm. And later in 2009, the BBC re- revived the show with uh, Stephen Fry um, in Adam's Place. And I think that the new show is about going and visiting the same species and seeing how they're doing today. I haven't watched the, the new show, haven't heard the BBC show. So I kind of focused on the book. So, I'm, you know, I may not have a complete picture of things, but uh, that's what it is. Interesting. You know, I, I've never, I didn't know all that. Yeah. What do you guys think of the book? I thought... It was incredible. It was exactly what I was after. And I got to say, I, I didn't go in with low hopes. So I went in with modest hopes. I thought, you know, this could be quite descriptive, you know, a lot about science and stuff. And I do like a nonfiction book, don't get me wrong. But yeah. it's hard to be thrown into a book sometimes, you know, no matter how how good a recommendation it is. Like, it, it it's, it's a big endeavor, but it felt so short. It was... 
I every time I would get to the picture pages on my Kindle, I'd just be like, damn it, less writing, like less, you know, this is just the stuff I'm missing out on. Like even though I love the pictures, it was just like every page was just um, highly valued in my eyes because it was just, there was jokes just peppered in there, but it was it, just the way he sets out the whole um, scene you know, and he does it in this in this sort of stylistic way where it's he says it like imperfectly, like he's describing the scene and like if something sort of happens in real life as he's writing it, he'll write it down and it's obviously when you don't have to, you can you could have like just say someone cuts you off, he might be writing something and he'll be like, Oh, just one second, you know. Um <laughs> like someone's calling me or something like that. Like not exactly that, but he does that sort of style where it's sort of you can sort of laugh at the scenario and it's um it happens all the way through the book. It's just it's a very British sort of way to write in my eyes. But um I I read a bit of um sort of British comedians and stuff and this guy was just really, really good. Really sort of subtle but sarcastic, a little bit that British humour where you sort of are down about everything, you know. Like there's that one in um in China, where they sort of go to increasingly remote places, and they just think, like when they're in, I think it was ne- uh, Beijing or something, they're like, oh, I wish um, home just feels so comfortable. And then they go to Nanjing, and they're like, Beijing just felt so comfortable. And then they go to like, I think they go to Wuhan actually, which is where the yep. coronavirus is uh, <laughs> um, outbreaking. But they're like, oh, Nanjing was so nice. <laughs> so they keep like re- they keep remembering how nice everything was before they got to the current state of where they are. So um, yeah, no, it's just it's just hilarious. Every everything was just so um, well um, written. So yeah, I loved it. I had a long, a long relationship with uh, with this book because, like, uh, as a teenager, I, I read all all the uh, Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy books, and I I love them until now. It's it's probably like my favorite books. And I remember that I started reading Last Chance to See, and I kind of I don't remember exactly about what happened, but but I kind of stopped in the middle, and I remember. It was always in the back of my mind, like uh, a book that is part of my culture quest that I need to. And I need to finish. And you know, I think like I started reading it last time about ten years ago, and now I got back to it. And I, I and I tried to start to to start reading it, and I just found that I didn't have the time, or the uh, you know, after a long work day, like sitting with a book, you kind of fall asleep right away. So yeah. So I started hearing the the audiobook. Uh, which was wonderful. It's supposed to be amazing. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm not sure who's narrate, narrating it, but uh, he's doing a, a great job. I would. I, I, it was like this great experience. The first audiobook I heard was Meditation, you know, one of the first mm-hmm. episodes that uh, we yeah. did. Um, so that was like, I, I never heard a book by, by audio. And the, and the funny thing is about it that even though it's like really comfortable because you know you just need to find the time and and listen to it. I had this crazy two weeks, and I sometimes when I got on, on my way to work, I had um, more than ten minutes to to listen to it. But what happened is that I I planned on like finishing it this week, and I just found that I didn't make it. So I actually woke up really early today. And I and I've been hearing for I, I was I finished the book 
So I'm after about three and a half hours of less chance to see, uh, <laughs> which is... <laughs> so it's really fresh in your mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, not as much as you would think, so don't test me. But... Um, <laughs> But it was uh, it's fun because like, you get you get in the vibe you get you get um, in Douglas Adams' mind and way of thinking and and the way to look at things and the bottom line is that it's just wonderful. I mean, I I always thought that like the Hitchhikers is is like something that can't be topped. But this is well, I'm not sure if it's topping the if if it's better than the Hitchhikers, but. It's definitely together with him. It's it got all these similarities: the the hatred for bureaucracy and the hilarious lookout on on the humankind and on the human condition. And then, like with all this humor and absurd, like this real profound way of thinking about stuff. On one hand, he he when they go in to see like silver silverback gorillas, then and they meet one, and he describes as 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 the the I have the exact quote if you want it. Yeah. Uh, oh, he says, "You will have heard it said before that these creatures are awesome beasts, and I would like to add my particular perception to this: these creatures are awesome beasts." <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> yep. it's such a good encapsulation of him. Yeah, and you know, so you got like this hilarious things that he brings on one hand, and then start to talk about how humankind has has evolved or. Uh, why we get dizzy when we're seeing heights where it's it doesn't make actual sense like it, you know I never thought about it yeah he touches a lot of small like subjects that you didn't think would come up but they're just very interesting yeah so yeah five stars from me I, I'm uh, five five on the barrier scale I'm sorry Peter but <laughs> <laughs> I read this book in high school as well um, and like you know a lot of the terms kind of went over my head I enjoyed it a lot but I didn't kind of get the full experience and now like you know as a master's degree student in a zoology ecology department of my university humble rack yeah <laughs> I kind of I kind of had an easier time with this book <laughs> and it's not a long book it's like 256 pages and like Peter like you've described it it just feels short you know it's just an easy read like it's not an easy subject and he talks about a lot of different subjects and and he explains a lot of things but still it feels easy to go through you know and um one of the things that i liked most is that he knows that he might not be the perfect man for the job you know he starts by the book by acknowledging that it's funny to send a science fiction author to write about a subject like endangered species and uh <laughs> i think he tries to tackle the problem by kind of doing a bit of everything, you know? He kind of describes the nature and the animals. He discusses the local people, and he talks about the ethics and morality of the stuff he sees. Um, and and I think he just does a very, very fine job doing it. And, like, the book would have come out very differently if a scientist guy would have wrote it. Like, um, you can see in the end, Mark, the zoologist in the team, he's written kind of a, a chapter uh, of his own. And, like, great to finish a book with, but, like... You would get a lot of a lot more informative book, you know, filled with numbers and principles and stuff. Uh, if a sciencey guy would have written it, but like by giving it to to Adams, which you know is not the right man for the job, but you get an informative book that is funny and accessible, which lacks all the dry details. But I think the BBC chose wisely, and um, some people didn't like it. Like a lot of people said that this book is not sciencey enough, you know? It's just touching 
the sciencey parts, but it doesn't get there enough. And I disagree. I think it's just exactly enough to to achieve what it wants to achieve. You know, mm-hmm. I think one of the the best parts in this book is the the writing style, like Adam's writing style. He has a knack for describing the weird stuff that you wouldn't normally pay too much attention to. Like he describes all the the absurd things, like the way he um, talks about the the kiosk in Zaire uh, in the airport where you can't buy anything if you don't have the right uh, currency, but you can't get the right currency. And he talks about um, you know how just perfect the German people are, so perfect oh, that he decides to that. describe them as anything other but German. Can and I like- read that out? That was so good. <laughs> so he says, not only was the forest thick. It was also cold, wet, and full of large black ants, which bit all of us except Helmut and Kurt, who were wearing special ant-proof socks which they had bought with them from Latvia. (laughs) (laughs) We complimented them on their foresight, and they shrugged and said it was nothing. Latvians were always well-prepared. They looked at our recording equipment and said that they were surprised that we thought it was adequate. They had much better tape recorders than that in Latvia. We said that might be very well so, but that we were very happy with it, and the BBC seemed to think it was fine for the job. Helmet, or was it Kurt? Explained that they had much better broadcasting corporations in Latvia. <laughs> <laughs> and the, But the thing is, he, he picks it up later as well. Like, I think you go, like, maybe two more pages, and he says, Helmet started to say something, which I like to think it was probably something about having far superior types of gorilla dung in Latvia. <laughs> but I interrupted him because I suddenly had one of those strange, uncanny feelings that I was being watched by a truck. So <laughs> kind of connects to that bit you're saying, but um, he just he just has a way of just I don't I don't know how like it's not just like he doesn't just say the funny stuff, but he says he reminds you of things just at the right moment, just so yeah. you you things you've just like I don't know how he does it. He might have read his own book and then decided where to put it in, but like just as you for like you you you're laughing about something. And you still have it in your head and you're chuckling and stuff like that. You read a little bit more, it's still in the back of your head, read a little bit more and you've kind of forgotten about it. And then like a couple more sentences, maybe another paragraph and you've, and it's out of your working memory. And then he brings it up again. And then you, you have that like one second pause where you're like, what? Uh, and then you get it. And it, it's just <laughs> perfect. It just, as soon as you forgot about something, he brings it up again. And it's just, it's all, it's just hilarious again. Yeah, but you know what? That's that's something that like is definitely positive, but it it has a bit of I don't know, it, it's sometimes too perfect. It sometimes feel a bit exaggerated. And like um it sometimes feels like he describes things so absurdly well that it sometimes crosses a line that feels too good to be true. And here's uh, a quote from a review by JG Killian and Goodreads. He says, "It's if he sees a completely different world than the rest of us." but one which looks precisely the same. Hmm. Yeah, I do get what you mean. Like some things are just too perfect, like as if it was just written for the book. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. It's just sometimes too absurd, too perfectly funny. And and like, you know, I know he wrote the book, like he wrote a lot of notes during the travels and then he went home and kind of edited it into a book and he had a lot of chances to exaggerate things. And I don't feel it takes from the book, but like, Sometimes I get the feeling that he lives. He it's it's a book written in a different universe than ours because it's too too absurd, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing I have to say against the book, which I don't think it's too bad. I'm actually going to steer into the skid, and I'll say like I, it is 
pretty absurd and a lot of the stuff compromises sort of what you could say is like the the actual record of the events so like if he was in court i think some of these sort of i don't know if you call them anomalies or happy coincidences sort of do damage the credibility of the narrator but i'm happy to go with it because it's just like without knowing exactly if there's anything that's compromised i would say like just the way it's executed runs really smoothly for me so I, I don't mind if there's a little bit of fudging of the details as long as like the spirit is kind of kept yeah i agree hmm. out of all the the species was, was there one that kind of popped out to you was i thought the scene with the um white rhino i thought that was like the particular scene where they're sort of um getting closer and closer and they're needing to sort of work with the wind and all that stuff i thought that scene was one of my favorites, but... Yeah, because the white rhino kind of sees w- w- with his yeah. smell, yeah. with his sense of smell. Yeah. So um, they have to navigate towards it by knowing which way the wind is blowing and yeah. like by staying in a single file, in a single line, so as to not appear huge. Yeah, that was um, that was probably one of my favorite animal sort of scenes, along with the, um, the, the kakapo. I, I enjoyed it in that scene where they finally got to see a kakapo. Um, but I yeah. think my favorite is probably the first one, the Komodo dragon. I think just how they got to the island like that. I don't know if it's my favorite animal, but it's definitely my favorite chapter based on that animal. Like that, I f- felt like the analysis of when they're sort of hanging the, it was a goat. Am I correct? Yeah. It was um, either a goat or a sheep. Yeah. Something like that. They're hanging that. And this, the commentary is really spot on. I thought like. Yeah, I thought that was probably one of the most entertaining for me, the Komodo dragon. But again, the silverback and the kakapo and the um, white rhino, they were probably my favorites, I think. Those those, those three, yeah. I think I'm with... Um... With uh, what's your name again, Peter? Peter, I'm. I think I'm with uh, with Peter on that one. Um, <laughs> sorry, mate. <laughs> um, I think I'm with you. Hey, is this episode ten or eleven, mate? Uh, <laughs> with my with my memory, it's hard to it's hard to remember. Um, um, so anyway, I think I think uh, I'm I'm with him. The the chapter with the with the Komodo dragon was was just brilliant. Um, and and um, well, I really liked it, but Peter pretty much summed it up nicely. I'll also add that I I enjoyed or, or didn't enjoy relating to uh, I think the third chapter where where they go to Zaire and they face like this whole terrible bureaucracy where people are kind of more uh, trying to hold them up <laughs> than than help them unless you give them money and. <laughs> Like there's there's a common feeling, you know. Sometimes when you travel, that that there are a lot of mechanisms that that simply try to hold you back instead of actually doing any good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was was so amusing. This whole rant about uh, <laughs> about trying to do stuff right that doesn't help anyone made me laugh. Yeah, there was a bit of a bureaucracy kind of theme that ran through the book, especially towards like the later later chapters um like in china was an interesting one from that standpoint because they're dumping a lot of money into it and then they're asking a comedian like so what do you think are our investments good and he's just sitting there like (laughs) just doesn't know what to say (laughs) so that was an interesting um it's very characteristic of china even nowadays they're just 
they're happy to sort of like get on the front foot and pour money into it for better or worse. And um, but then there's the um, the I'm, I think I'm forgetting the animal, but um, in um, along near I think it was near Madagascar where they have like an insane amount of rare species and very rare species. So they're only interested in like the very, very, very rare species where there's only like tens of them. Mauritius, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty um, intense that um, the, this trying to, you know, because obviously the work has to be done on ground level, but I think some of the most important work is just securing funding and, stuff like that and there was a funny um there was a funny quote where um or not a quote but just a passage where he's saying like really what do you what um what this guy wants to do is he wants to take the shareholders money and or no he wants to just get on with running his um running this operation oh and also have the shareholders money so <laughs> um it's like a yeah. it's like a weird sort of balance i don't remember his name but he's like a he's like a very talented guy in um, conserving animals like it's what he did when he was a kid in his backyard just for fun and he's so talented at it that he moved from England to the United States to study about it and then moved to Mauritius to kind of actually do it but then when he got the chance to actually do it he found out that he has a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of um, people that he has to you know kind of beg for money for and he doesn't have the time to actually take care of the animals which is all just absurd and like i think this is again one of the best parts of the book the part in mauritius when they there's just a bunch of endangered species there it kind of shows how uh, what a state the world is in because like there they see that when compared to a lot of other species the rodriguez fruit bat which is the rarest bat in the world a species that is you know down to just a few hundred individuals is considered fine like, there's a guy there called Richard who keeps calling the bat common hmm. and boring. <laughs> Mark and Douglas kind of always protest it. And, you know, they, they keep reminding him it's the rarest bat in the world. And he says, yeah, but there are a few hundreds of them. Do you know how many echo parakeets there are in the wild? Fifteen. 15. That's rare. <laughs> yeah, and, and hundreds, hundreds is common. It's, you know, then Adams sit and describes watching the bats. You know, they, they sit on, I don't remember where, on the road or on the beach, and they see the fruit bats flying out of the roost. Um, and, and he says, the bats are doing just fine. There are hundreds of them. And he says, I have a terrible feeling that we're in trouble. And I think that this part of the book just puts everything in perspective, in, in this horrible perspective. Because... This book is 30 years old, and the situation hasn't become much better since then, you know? The fruit bat is doing a little better, and some of the other species are doing better as well. But it's because of concentrated efforts. And there's a whole lot of other species that don't get this special treatment, and they're either doing worse or gone extinct since. When a bat is down to a few hundreds and it's still considered fine, that's not a situation we want to be in. Well, I think this is a interesting question for you guys maybe i could poll your intuitions if we were to launch a species into the wild and it just wouldn't survive like the kakapo is a good example do we sort of like what what's our responsibility to sort of um quarantine islands and stuff like that to sort of give them an environment to prosper is is the goal always to get them back into the wild or um is it to just 
foster this sort of quarantine zone indefinitely or like what's the point because i know the chinese sort of take this like duty sort of role you know they say it's our duty to protect what we inhabited so whereas i think a lot of more westerners they just want the next generation to sort of see what we have and then hopefully they take interest and it it's just something that we can almost have on file you know so I'm just wondering what your perspective is on sort of keeping these animals almost like metaphorically on life support. It's a question of managing the system, you know, like if we can reintroduce a single species, uh, then then it's a way of managing the, the, the ecosystem. And I just feel that this is a system that is far, far too great for us to understand, you know, how can we even try to manage something that is this big and is continuously changing and um i don't know i don't know like if we can reintroduce the kakapo into the nature what about other species that used to live there and you know have gone extinct just a few years before conservation efforts have started for the kakapo we can't really go back you know um my short answer is yes i think (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, I I think that um, as a species, we we made the damage. So as a species, we have the responsibility to mend it. I think the story the book finishes with is pretty much like the whole point. For the listeners who maybe don't remember or maybe didn't read it, there's a story about this old lady that comes to a, a city each year. She suggests uh, to sell like books with all the knowledge in the world for a specific uh, amount of uh, ba- bags of gold. And the thing is that they don't believe her. And every time they refuse, she burns like half of the books. And when she comes back next year, she, she doubles the price. So she starts like with with 12 books for one bag of gold. They refuse. She come back the year later with only six books of the entire knowledge of the world. But now it costs two bags of gold, etc., etc. Until the story ends with, uh, you know, only one book left. And now it already costs, I don't know, like 16 bag of, bags of gold. And the point of the story is that the more you wait with it, the more you lose and the more pricey it gets. The thing that I didn't agree about the story is that when you're saying books with with wisdom, well, you know what, maybe maybe I do agree with that, but like when you're saying books with with wisdom, you're you're kind of referring to something that has a functional use to you. Uh, so you can read it and you can take the knowledge from it and, and you can actually gain something from it. And I think there's something with like you know when we talk about ecology in in general then um at the end i don't think that it should come from from the functional use it's just like from responsibility for our environment i think it's a good practice i think um the the ecosystem the global ecosystem it strives to be in equilibrium and like once we came into the global scene and started changing everything the the rate of extinctions rose dramatically it's just like um the rate of climate change it's it's always happened the climate's always been changing the the extinctions always happened but like the the numbers of species that we're losing every every day or every year and is is just high and we know it's due to human activity 
I don't know if saving one species is enough. I don't know if saving a few species is enough. Like, I think we have to get to a point where nature has a chance to reach a certain equilibrium again. Otherwise, sustainable living just doesn't feel like an option. And that's, it's not something that Europe can decide to do or China or America or whatever. It's something that humanity has to do. I, I kind of hope that one day we will be able to do it, but like the sooner, the better. And this book is 30 years old and the situation hasn't changed one bit since then. I feel sort of similar to what you're saying sort of in the middle there. My empathy towards saving just one species changes depending on what sort of distance I'm looking at. So if I look at like one, like say we'll take the kakapo because I like the kakapo. It's just a cute bird, doesn't fly. It's just, (laughs) you know, we need to just hold its hand for it to survive and stuff like that. When I look at it like that, I'm just thinking, let's just pour resources into this. Let's like try to, you know, help them out as much as we can, make sure that we don't lose any more. But I zoom out a little bit more and I think, well, this is going to sound a little bit, a little bit too take, like I've taken the red pill, but the species are just like, uh, you get a new species if like one particular species is separated by sort of like a, uh, like an ocean or something like that. And they grow s- far enough apart so that they can't interbreed again. So really species aren't all that important to preserve the diversity of them i think like a lot of the things that i'm worried about are more to do with preserving just animals no matter how rare they are and even maybe a little small bias against rare animals because why would you spend millions and millions of dollars putting up sort of like quarantine areas for a species that's almost died out but you have so many you have so many species that are sort of losing rainforest and losing like um trees and stuff like that like the um koala bear in australia or something like that so like i i feel like there's a sort of just distortion of what is the morally correct thing to want and it's like if i'm if i'm willing to put in a million dollars to save 15 kakapo surely i'd be willing to put in a million dollars to improve the life of animals that are rapidly going down, you know? And then I zoom out a little bit more and I think, well, really we should be doing stuff that's just going to regulate the planet. So, like, even so hypothetically we have, say we have um, 50,000 different species of animal. If we had 5,000, it really shouldn't matter, like, how many species of animals we have. It's It's arbitrary, you know? We just happen to arrive on Earth at this time and you know, the number is given to us, you know, it's, it's, we can't control what's happened over the last 2 million years. So really we should just be preserving whatever we've got. It shouldn't matter how rare it is, you know? Yeah, I agree. That's sort of my final stance, but I'm still a little bit confused. I'm, my intuition sort of trips me out a little bit sometimes. Like I'm at, sometimes I'm really just, I really want to save one particular animal, but then other times I'm thinking, well, Let's just do whatever we can to help animals. Like, it doesn't have to be the hardest or the most intricate one to find, you know. So, can I just quickly stop you? You're you're saying animals all the time, and it's it's plants as well. Like, we can't forget well, that it's actually it's a lot of things. That I think again, I'm going off my intuition here. I don't really have a sort of a formalized sort of idea of what we should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. But 
plants don't strike me as much because they don't. There's nothing that it's like to be a plant. Like if I just mow down a bunch of plants, it's not like that's not. I'm not. I'm not removing a bunch of experiences which otherwise would have existed. But with animals, there's something that it's like to be that animal. There's and as soon as as soon as you can do something to affect an experience, so I can either make a monkey's life worse or or um, better, then I feel like we have an obligation. If if it if it doesn't feel anything, I don't think we have any obligation to preserve it. But the only thing is. I'd be very apprehensive about touching things in the environment because most ecology stories are just, oh, we did this and you wouldn't imagine what happened to this, you know? Like Mm -hmm. it's full of like taking a a species, like a small um, insect species and then suddenly like trees stop growing. The field is just full to the brim of articles saying – you you wouldn't believe like the chain of events which can happen if you touch something and i think plants are sometimes even more integral to this chain of events because we don't see what's happening under the ground a lot of the time whereas with animals we can see what they hunt because we can actually track them with cameras but with satellites but with plants you don't know exactly what what's going on so um i think i'm only i'm only against plants just from the fact that it could affect animals so if if we could safely remove an animal, um, sorry, a plant, then um, I don't really see the problem. Well, I don't see the advantage though at the moment. But what we have is is a bunch of ecological systems that we have to. These is what we have to preserve because, like, take the kakapo. It's a species that we're trying to conserve, but the the environment that allowed it to grow and evolve into what it is today without the, the environment in, in the, the island of New Zealand with no predators, with the, the exact type of fruit, the rimu fruit. The, 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 the female are only fertile when the, the rimu fruit is growing. So it's like a whole system that once we, the humans, have introduced predators into, that system doesn't exist anymore, except from one or two islands, I think, in New Zealand, where these are quarantine zones, you know, where we uh, extracted the predators from. Conserving the kakapo now is, I think, a noble uh, goal, but we can't really introduce it back to nature because that nature, that piece of environment doesn't exist anymore. It would actually be unnatural to put it into yeah. nature now. Exactly. And it would be cruel as well. Yep, it won't have a chance to survive. That That's exactly the point. Like, we have to conserve... The, the ecosystems that we have left now and then the species that have evolved into these ecosystems will, will have a chance to survive. I think in defense of pouring money into saving species, which there may only be 10 of, like even though it might not economically be a good decision and it might actually be immoral in some sense, if, if we could spend a million dollars to improve the lives of 100,000 monkeys, or we could spend a million dollars to save 10 kakapos. Isn't it really our sort of, you know, exotic tastes that lead us to want to preserve a kakapo? Like, really, we should get over ourselves and save what's most abundant. But in another sense, in defense of this, it's a nice thing that humans are taking this role on, you know, at cost to themselves. Yeah. It's nice that we have it. Like it, it's one of those things where it's like it may not make sense, like economically, it may not be viable, 
but it's like if you want to be part of a species, you'd want your species to do this. Like it makes you taking responsibility is, is I think, something that we should be proud of, you know, because it's not necessarily going to be um, – it's not going to be every decision isn't exactly going to be serve our interests, but um, it's it's something that I feel like if we're going to have honour as a species, we shouldn't feel the obligation to make cold, hard decisions about everything we do. Sometimes we can do things out of empathy, and it's not a not a bad thing. No, not at all. I agree. Um, like I said many times, the book came out thirty years ago, and um, I I kind of compiled the list of species they discussed in the book and checked. How they're doing today? Um, well, this will be interesting. I haven't, I haven't checked any. So, yeah, um, some are happy and some are sad. Let me tell you right now. Uh, okay, All right. <laughs> and um, come on, Kakafo. <laughs> oh yeah. So let's start. I'm going by the the order they were introduced in the book. Cool. So the first one is the Ai lemur in Madagascar. Yep. So today it is still classified as endangered. Uh, I think it's been described in the book. They're, they've been driven into like a, a corner of the island, you know, like they have like a certain area in which they still live. The I.I. Limer still faces a lot of problems today, like the locals kill it either because they believe it's evil, just superstitious beliefs, or in order to protect their crops, or just for poaching. The, the situation isn't good for the Limer. Um, the second one, the Komodo dragon, um, it's classified as uh, vulnerable, which is a level above endangered. When you say above, you mean better? Yeah, than... yeah yes. Okay, um, Vulnerable is, a, is a one level better than endangered. Um, there are 3,000 in the wild, and it seems that its numbers in the wild are slowly decreasing, which is uh, not a good thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the kakapo parrot in uh, New Zealand, it's classified as critically endangered, which is a level below, a level worse than endangered. Um, but there are some good news here. I think in the book there were about 40 kakapos, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And since then, there has been a steady rise due to conservation efforts. 2019 was a big year in terms of conservation. Uh, there's been an abundance of the rainbow fruit, which is, I've mentioned earlier, the fruit that the female kakapo is dependent on, uh, on being fertile or not. And um, due to new technologies such as artificial insemination and something called smart eggs, which <laughs> I haven't gone into. Um, these are have all helped uh, make this breeding season very successful. And the kakapo uh, population has reached 200 juvenile or older birds in August of 2019. Wow, that's really good. That's like five times yeah, as many. Th- this is uh, really good news. The kakapo is still critically endangered, but the tr- it's trending upwards. Um, the mountain gorilla in Zaire, uh, classified as endangered, there is a steady rise in numbers. In 1989, the number of gorillas in the wild was um, 320 individuals. Today, it's believed to be over um, 1,000. Just over 1,000. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, the northern white rhinoceros in Zaire, classified as critically endangered. Um, the situation here seems to be just bad. Like in the 70s and 80s, there were like just 15 individuals of the species, and their numbers grew. Uh, to be uh, around 32, which is just nothing. Slightly better. Yeah, but since then, poaching has intensified and their numbers have been extremely reduced. And the Yangtze River dolphin, or the Baiji, which is a river dolphin they see in China, most likely extinct. 
the last sighting of the species oh, oh, was man. in 2004. 2004. There's that's been a be possible sighting in 2007, but most likely extinct. Wow, that's a shame. Yeah. And uh, the last last species we've talked about, the Rodriguez fruit bat in Mauritius, uh, also classified as endangered. Its numbers have not increased by much since Adams and Carwardine visited it in 1989, but um, in recent years, it has been determined that its numbers are trending upwards. Yeah, uh, mo- most of the species aren't doing well, like uh, the kakapo is doing better, um, the mountain gorillas are doing better, but other than that... And these are mm. species that do get a lot of attention. Uh, there are mm. plenty of other species which don't. And um, there's a, a quote from Mark. The, the last chapter of the book was written by Mark, the zoologist. I really like the chapter because it really gives a lot of perspective to everything. And there's a quote here which I really liked. Uh, it says, Zoologists and botanists explore new areas, scrabbling to record the mere existence of species before they become extinct. It is like someone hearing through a burning library, desperately trying to jot down some of the titles of the books that we will never be able to read now. Kind of sad. It's kind of awful. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but all in all, I've really enjoyed this book. <laughs> I'm really glad we read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great book. It is so funny. It is so funny. Yeah. Like, it's so enjoyable to read. Just the writing style. And not the writing style in like a pretentious, like, you know, long sentence way. It's very easy to read. Yeah. And it's almost like a comedy, stand-up comedy from time to time. Yeah, very you know, much so. There's, yeah. there's many strings of pages where it's it's more serious or more descriptive, but every once in a while it'll just be laughing out loud. And I don't yeah. laugh out loud actually very often. Like sometimes when I'm reading a particularly funny book, I'll laugh in my head. Like I'll think it's funny and I'll smile or something like that, but it, I won't really have a reaction. This time I think many times I've put the book down and just started laughing and then I've stopped laughing and then I've started laughing again because it's just, <laughs> it's yeah. just hilarious. Yeah, it's a very funny book. It's a very fun experience. Did you have any other quotes that you wanted to read or any other funny ones maybe? I have a few other quotes, sure. Um, all right, so um, like I ha- I've written down a few quotes that kind of show the style of writing that Adams has. Like, oh, that'd uh, be great. Do you want to just do you wanna, um, go through them and we'll sort of... You know, have a laugh. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like the first one I have here is about, um, he, he talks about the absurdity in coconuts. Like he talks about how how they seem to be perfectly designed for human consumption, but how hard it is to reach them. He says this, coconuts are almost perfectly designed. You first make a hole and drink the milk. Then you split open the nut with a machete and slice off a segment of the shell, which forms a perfect implement for scooping out the coconut flesh inside. It is so perfectly designed to be of benefit to human beings, except it hangs 20 feet above our heads on a tree with no branches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it also keeps going. That, like, when you finally get it, then it's very hard to open it. And, and like God say, oh, you, you, you succeeded in opening it. So, okay, here, here are a lot of, of dragon lizards around that can eat you. <laughs> Just to make it challenging enough. <laughs> uh, another quote about a bird. It's a bird called the Megapode. Ah, yeah. Um, he talks about the absurdity of, of the way it um, incubates its eggs. He says, all the Megapode has to do to incubate its eggs is to dig three cubic yards of earth out of the ground, fill it with three cubic yards of rotting vegetation, 
collect a further 6 cubic yards of vegetation, build it into a mound, and then continually monitor the heat it is producing and run about adding bits or taking bits away. And thus, it saves itself all of the bother of sitting on its eggs from time to time. <laughs> that was so good. First time I read that, I was just like, but sitting on your... Oh. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that doesn't say... Oh. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that. I could see, I could see like another writer saying like, oh, it does all this stuff and really it's to fill the function of sitting down, but this this fur just does it like that. And you sort of, you come out thinking like, or you would come out thinking, oh, okay, that's a bit weird. Oh, well, let's just skip over it. But like highlighting the absurdity of it yeah. makes you remember it, you know? Yeah, it's totally easy to just skip over it, like to ignore it yeah. because it's just weird, yeah. but it's just something a weird bird does. But no, it, it, it just, he, he um, lingers on it. He points out the absurdity in it. Um, hmm. Another quote that kind of shows it is, um, when they're in the airport in Zaire, um, they're just passing through an international airport and um, there, there's a kiosk there. They want to get coffee and chocolates. But um, here's a quote. The girl wouldn't sell us anything. She seemed surprised that we even bothered to raise the subject. The problem was this. Um, she would only accept Tanzanian currency. She knew that we didn't have any. No one ever did. The airport had no currency exchange facilities, therefore no one who came in here could possibly have any Tanzanian currency, hmm. and therefore she couldn't serve them. After a few minutes of futile arguments, um, we had to accept the flawless simplicity of her argument and just sit our time gloomily eyeing the coffee and chocolate bars while our pockets bulged with useless dollars, sterling, <laughs> French francs, and Kenyan shillings. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> he he just has a way of, of, of pointing out absurdity. I I love the scenes. I'm calling them scenes. They're not scenes. They're real <laughs> things in real life. I call them scenes because they're like skits almost, but they're real. So, But I love all the scenes in the airports, just like, and in the planes and stuff like that. Just the nervousness, you know, yeah. <laughs> or just the incongruity. Oh. Um, I got one as well. Um, uh, another one talking about the, um, what would you call it? The unfortunate nature of traveling. Um Virtually everything we were told in Indonesia turned out not to be true, sometimes almost immediately. The only exception to this was when we were told something would happen immediately, in which case it turned out not to be true over an extended period of time. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was good. Just his style of writing is, is worth <laughs> reading his books. It's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, let me finish by saying that, well, according to The Salmon of Doubt, which is a posthumous biography and essay collection, Adams describes uh, Last Chance to See as his favorite work of his. Oh, hmm. wow. Yeah. This is a very special book, and it seems that Adams feels so as well. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, in our next episode, uh, we'll be discussing All-Star Superman, a comic book. Uh, Peter, you chose it. Uh, do you mind telling us about, like, why you chose it? Yeah, I've had this sitting on my bookshelf for quite a while, and I have I have read it, but it's been quite a long time. And I remember this being so rich with different sort of themes and different sort of Easter eggs hidden everywhere, as long as we're um, sort of talking about uh, the superheroes, uh, I think it was a couple episodes ago before Hunt for the Wilder People, um, I was sort of talking up Daredevil, but I also mentioned that Superman sort of had a um, this 
problem where people found it hard to write a good Superman comic because everything was just too easy for him to defeat and stuff like that. Um, This one doesn't have that problem. I think it's hailed as probably the Superman comic and the the art is fantastic and the story is fantastic. Every comic book in the series, I think it's... um, 22 to 24 page sort of um, comic of this sort of um, collected volume, I guess you call it, or a, or a, or a trade paperback. It, it takes on a very unique vibe. It's, it's always in a different setting and he's always sort of battling a different obstacle. So, mm, cool. um, yeah, really easy to read as well. I think it's quite a few pages, but it's um, pretty pictures and few um, bangs and crunches and stuff like that. So it, it's not too hard to get through. But I think um, the reason I really chose it is because this is like if we wanted to do sort of like a comic book and get into the graphic novel sort of space, All-Star Superman is it's a benchmark sort of comic. It's something we can say like um, we something we can compare future readings to and cool. it's something that sort of has stood up um, the test of time. It's It was released, I think, um, throughout... 2005 um for um two or three years and um then you've got sort of the whole collected volume to read so um it's been out for about a decade now so yeah i don't have a lot of experience with comics and like 24 pages each or so it shouldn't be too long to read 12 of these but i i see here it's it's um the art was done by frank quietly which uh, he's very highly regarded like i think it's going to be just fun looking at, a, at the pictures, you know? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what a story about Superman can be because he's just kind of the perfect, the classical superhero. So I'm interested to see where they take it, um, how they make it interesting. So I'm really happy where it's, again, it's something new. We've never done comic books and it's not uh, something I read often. So it's it's a good, it's going to be a good experience, I think. Yeah, we've gone pretty wide. We've had, I um, guess you could call philosophy books. We've had nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. We've had um, video games. We've had uh, obviously movies and yeah. um, albums. So um, this is graphic novels now. So yeah. something new. Awesome, awesome. I can't wait to, to start reading this. All right, cool. Uh, thank you, Peter. And thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And thank you, the listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. Um, we hope that you join us again next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. See ya. Hey, this is Jeff. And I'm Chris. We've been friends. Acquaintances. Nah, friends. Shipmates. Dude, come on, we've been friends. Fine, sure, whatever. We've been friends for 23? No, 24. Whatever, dude, it's been a long time. <laughs> no kidding. We host a show called Round and Round. We discuss the worst. And sometimes the best. Headlines we can find. Watch for signs of the Cold War heating up again. And desperately try to find some good news to celebrate. Occasionally, we delve into important topics impacting the world, the nation, or those around us. And every once in a while, we take a break from the real world to talk about new movies or to revisit and reimagine old movies we love. Find us at rnrthepodcast.com. Tweet us at rnrthepodcast and download Round and Round on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you cast your pods. Join us every Wednesday, won't you? I wouldn't recommend it. That's fine. 